Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host, Grant Pemberton, and on today's episode, we have uh, a special guest that Ken will introduce and to talk about a lot of things that are happening current event-wise that are probably on the top of your radar, maybe even as you're listening to this uh, after the Thanksgiving holiday, if you're in the States, you have talked about this, thought about this, and so we wanted to bring you uh, this as soon as we could. So, Ken... Thank you. I, I think you're joining us uh, remotely. You're in the field. Ken is in the field right now. And as a reporter live on the scene, as you'll be <laughs> able to see very quickly, uh, he's uh, so on the scene. He's in his car. And um, Ken, it's just another example of how busy you are and how honored we are that you will join us anywhere in the world at any time in the world uh, to bring us uh, all of the things that you do. So thanks. Thanks for taking time out of your schedule. I think you're somewhere in the United States and you're not driving in case anyone's worried you're, you're immobile right now. You're in park and, uh, but you are in your car. So Ken, thanks for joining us. Yeah. It's great to be with you again. Um, today on our show, we have Dan Juster. Uh, Dan is a longtime leader in the Messianic Jewish movement, many decades, uh, maybe one of the most senior voices in the world in that movement. And um, Dan is the leader of something called Restoration from Zion. So if you want to uh, look him up on the internet, you can use that organizational name. Uh, Dan, your your list of um, kudos, plaudits, and more is lengthy, but um, I'll just mention a couple of things. Uh, You've been commuting back and forth, I think is the only way to say it between Israel and the United States for more years than I can remember. Uh, Dan holds a PhD in theology and has written um, quite a bit of groundbreaking uh, thought and theological um, foundation work for the Messianic movement. Um, He's a charismatic leader as well as a theologian. And so we've got the combining of that spirit-led life with the word-centered life. I could go on, but um, Dan and I, our relationship has grown over time. And Dan, it's just great to have you on the show with us. Thanks for joining us. Well, it's good to be with you, Ken. And I hope we're together in person in the near future. That's part of my dream. Yep. That that new Bible school in Israel. Yes, that's our dream. Yeah, at a minimum. So, um, Dan, to, to kick off the show today, why don't you tell us what it was like you were in jerusalem when the gaza war broke out on the 7th of october i think you're in the u.s as we're making this show but what was it like to be in jerusalem as the war was breaking out the rockets were falling etc just just take us back roughly a month and a half almost two months to what that was like well our itinerary now is four months in the united states and eight months in israel and we were coming to the end of the um time in Israel to come back for our two months in the United States. And then on October 7th morning, uh, we live in the same house with my daughter Simcha and her husband Jonathan, who's the pastor of our congregation in Jerusalem. And um, she came downstairs uh, yelling for everybody to get into the shelter, which is in our apartment in the house. Uh, It's a small shelter. The uh, sirens were going off. And at the time, we thought, well, this is just another one of those deals where they shoot up rockets from Gaza and Israel will go back and 
them and that'll be the end of it. I mean, we've been living through that for years and Israel has never invaded or sought to put an end to that permanently. So that's what we thought it was. And then we kept hearing sirens and kept having to go back to the shelter. And then amazingly, a, um, uh, a rocket landed about a block from our house and exploded and uh, the grandkids were a little traumatized, little, not hugely, but a bit, because they had never experienced anything like that before. And we had 11 people in that little shelter because my son uh, was visiting with his wife and and son, one of his kids. We were planning on a conference, so we were all stuffed in that shelter and wondering what is going on, because this is more than usual. And then late in the day, all these reports came out about an invasion, atrocity. First, we read it was a couple of hundred that had crossed the border. And then later it came out that thousands crossed the border from Gaza and was not anticipated. Later, we found that the people who were speaking warning were shut down and told to be quiet that this is not going to happen. And so it's the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the 70, 73 war where Israel was not prepared. And here we go again with almost the same mentality. So uh, the horrific reports came out. And, uh, you know, I don't know how far I should go from this question, but we were in and out of that shelter for a couple of weeks. Um, my son's planes back to the United States were canceled. Uh, he does not live in Israel. He was evacuated by the free flights that Governor DeSantis provided from Florida for Florida citizens. So that was amazing. Mm. But um, then we, uh, of course, canceled our congregational service that day. It was to be a Sumchat Torah rejoicing in the Torah service and began to get uh, in touch with each other in our WhatsApp group. And uh, then they did the mobilization and a lot of people connected to our congregation and congregations were mobilized. Um, so when you, when you say congregations were mobilized, what do you mean by that? Well, our local congregation is Ahavat Yeshua. And then we have another eight congregations that are linked together in Tikkun Israel. And then we're very close to other networks and other individual congregations. But just as an example, the following week, uh, we did have our congregation meet and um, we prayed and we said, we realized that some of our own congregational members were mobilized. Uh, one of our worship leaders, uh, uh, well, two, I know two of our worship leaders are in the war, one in Gaza and one in the South. And then we, have other families that were close to whose children are in the war. And then we did a poll of how many people have uh, congregational uh, relatives, children that are in the war. And we had 25 people come and say they had close relatives in the war, some members of our congregation and some connected to those members very intimately. So we made a list to pray for all of those. But uh, it's a huge number for a congregation of 150. One of the new uh, uh, attendees at our congregation came to the Lord from a Orthodox background, and she had a brother taken captive and another brother that was a hero. 
in rescuing people during that time after he was injured. And he was all over the headlines uh, in Israel and even Fox News. But that that is that close to us as we were praying and she was crying out to the Lord for mercy for her brother. So that's the level of reality that we're facing. Uh, one of our leaders, the only one that we know who has lost was that one of our leaders had a, um, a uh, niece, not a member of the congregation that was killed. She was a soldier in the Gaza inv invasion. Uh, on that day. And then another one um, uh, had a uh, member who lost his legs in the bombing and very difficult straits, but is recovering uh, now in the hospital. So, um, but so far, all of the rest of the people connected to our congregations have not been casualties. So we thank God for that. Yeah, praise the Lord. I was in Ukraine in. Um... Uh, September and October, and I talked with a lot of people who, in one way or another, had been affected by the Ukraine war. So I don't think most people in the United States, or even for that matter, Western lands, whether, you know, Australia, New Zealand, or Western Europe, I don't think most of us can really relate to the impact of something like this, because thankfully, uh, we've mostly known peace uh, for a long time. And whilst occasionally you'll know a soldier or a sailor or an airman who may, a Marine, don't want to leave anyone out, um, who has been deployed and maybe something happens there. A lot of that is, I don't know if it's swept under the rug as much as it's kind of lost in the hubbub of life. But when you've got smaller congregations where everybody in the congregation knows everybody, you've got a smaller country like Israel where in some sense of the word, I guess everybody is only, we talk about seven degrees of separation here in the U.S., but maybe in Israel, they're only two degrees separated from everybody. These things really come home and they land on you very hard. Well, when you think of Israel having seven million Jews and yep. mobilizing 350 to 500,000 people, you all know people that are right in the middle of it. It's different than the Vietnam War. In high school, I lost uh, two people that I was acquainted with in in my class uh, out of 1,200 people in the high school. But we didn't know a lot of people personally in the Vietnam War because you're looking at 200 million people in that war compared to 7 million people. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the bigger a nation becomes in terms of its populace, uh, the more diluted the effect is of those who are directly involved. Um, let's go back for a second to the, you said a rocket landed about a block from where you lived and there was a you know big explosion. Uh, your grandchildren were at least briefly traumatized. I'm glad it wasn't a long-term sort of thing. Um, but I don't think our listeners, most of them have ever been under rocket fire. So what, Tell us a little bit, just in, a, in layman's terms, what is a rocket and what does it mean when a rocket lands, you know, in your area, in your case, a block away? And what kind of destruction can a rocket bring? Because I think for a lot of us, at least in the United States, a lot of the, our states allow what we might call rockets or bottle rockets. 
and they're used for like Fourth of July celebrations and things like that. And as a result, um, we might almost think of these as more noisemakers and fun as opposed to true weapons of war. So yeah. tell us what it's like to be on the ground in an incoming fire zone. Yeah. Well, these are bombs and um, they will produce injuries uh, because they're they're pretty good size bombs. Now, they have different levels of bombs in Gaza and from Hezbollah in the north. So the biggest ones are very dangerous. The smaller ones are not that dangerous if they don't land in a house or an apartment building. But they can land in a house or an apartment building, and then they'll produce a lot of casualties. And one of the things that comes out from the bomb is the shrapnel that kills people in the area if they don't strike a house. So this, we, we live about a block from a children's park and it was early in the morning. So the children were not out playing yet. They would have been a little bit later. And so when we went up to see the bomb, there was a big hole in the road. Thankfully it landed in the road, but the shrapnel went out and down walls and fences and cars that were uh, damaged by the shrapnel and of course that would have killed people uh, or injured them severely if that had happened so what happens in Israel is they have this thing called the Iron Dome where they take out about 85% of these rockets they don't target all of the rockets if they're going toward an open field or a place that doesn't look it's endangering they let it go but when the rockets are coming to Tel Aviv or Rishon LeZion, or uh, they're coming to dangerous areas, um, they they shoot them down with the Iron Dome if possible. But some of them get through and have called, caused major injuries. One of the strange, uh, sad facts is that we live next to a Muslim town that is very friendly to Israel. And uh, one of those rockets did uh, end up killing one of the Muslims in that town and produced a lot of anger in the population of Abu Ghosh. It was very sad. And actually, there's a, an Arab Muslim that is a guard at our mall, and he was in deep grief over this fellow that died because he knew him. So yes, mm -hmm. the rockets, you're, 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 even though the chances that you're going to get injured by one are slim, it's traumatizing to see these things coming, to hear them explosion. And so Israel has been living with trauma for years with these Hamas rockets, and um, but they haven't been willing to go all out to clean it out, and now they are, and they're finding that the stores of rockets and launchers is unbelievable. All of Gaza was being used as a base for military operations to the destruction of the prosperity of their people. Right. Yeah, I've read plenty about that i've not been there to see it up close but even the photographs suggested because there's an old argument in economic theory guns are butter and so in an economy you can choose between a militarized economy and this was this became popular uh, in the discussions about the great society of lyndon johnson versus the vietnam war guns would have been the war uh butter would have been a lot of these social programs and things they wanted to Put forth and basically the argument was you can choose between guns and butter but you can't have both and so what gaza has done under the auspices of hamas as leaders uh since what was it 2006 i believe when they were elected to power um they've chosen to take all the money 
or the, nearly all the money that has been given to them by um, multilateral authorities like the UN and uh, use all of that money to buy more and more weaponry to build more and more uh, reinforced fighting positions like these tunnels. And, uh, and they have failed to spend the money on the well-being or the development of the economy of Gaza. So all of Gaza has become an armed camp. That's, yeah. that's what it is. With a population living above the armed camp, which is in the tunnels below. And um, it's also enriched the senior leaders of Hamas, the ones in Qatar, or Qatar, <laughs> depending how you pronounce it. And I always hear both. Uh, worth 10 to $12 billion, the three top leaders. So they also line their pockets with all this international aid as well, amazingly. Right. Or maybe not so amazingly, because we know that in corrupt regimes like this, um, seemingly those on top do well and nobody else below does. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So um, so that's kind of a view uh, of, of what it's like to live with these rockets landing. And I guess the other question I have about the rockets, again, just trying to give people a sense of why this is why it's both been a long-term problem and why it's such a serious problem because i think these things are typically downplayed in the western media um what is it like to live your life in a country where at any moment with no warning at all a siren could go off and depending on where you are and where it was launched from you might have on in the longest sense maybe 90 seconds to get into your bomb shelter and if you're closer maybe as short as 15 or 20 seconds. What is it like to live on a hair trigger like that? Well, especially in the South, uh, for example, in uh, the whole region that is near Gaza, Starod being the largest city, uh, th these are a traumatized people and they want Israel to go in and clean out Gaza. They wanted that for years and Israel has refused to do that. And then you have Hezbollah in the North so there are different levels of trauma depending upon how far you are from where the attacks come. But everybody in Israel um, experiences this. And I would say a large part of the population lives in what I call uh, a low-grade post-traumatic stress. You see it on the roads, you see it in the intense, you see it in the reactions of people. And, um, you know, Israelis are... Really, some of them can be the nicest people in the world, but it's still there are triggers in people. Yeah. And and you see these triggers. This is why, you know, my wife is really wanting to establish a post-traumatic stress healing center in Israel. And uh, we're talking to various people about partnering with us in that. But um, but I'm just saying the general sense is that people are on edge. And, and um we noticed that when we first moved there um, almost 20 years ago. And I think all of us have a little bit of sense of what that's like, but not in America. We don't necessarily live with you might hear a siren and you've got a few moments to get yourself to safety, um, which, you know, you don't know how long that's going to last either. This one lasted a lot longer than normal. Um, there are some neighborhoods in some cities of the U.S., that are dangerous and gunfire can erupt at any time uh, due to perhaps gang violence. 
or similar things like that. Um, <clears throat> but much of the much of the Western world simply doesn't experience this kind of living. Could say sympathetic, yeah. but I don't think their understanding of why the situation that's been existing now for about 15 years, uh, maybe even a little longer than that, has been unacceptable. And yet the price of going in to clean this out is very high, as we've seen. Yeah. Um, not only are there the civilian casualties, there's just the enormous uh, destruction of war and the cost to the Israeli army, not just in terms of lives, but also just the daily operational cost. I saw a report that Israel was running something like 500 million a month budget deficit as a result of this war. It's not really something that they were, <clears throat> I don't know how you budget for something like this, but, no. uh, but once you start doing that, uh, there's, there's munitions to buy and fuel and salaries to pay to the soldiers and food. And it just sort of goes on and on. And, and people don't often think about what this is. So the question is, when does it become so severe uh, that you ultimately just your hand is forced and you must do something. And I think what you're telling us without saying it quite this way, I'm, I'm trying to draw a point to it, is that what happened on October 7 was so severe that Israel was really left with no choice other than to do what they're doing. Right. Um, you know, one of the things that has pain, been painful to us as Israelis, we not only have the trauma of the uh, war and the atrocities killing those 1,200 plus people, unbelievable slaughter and mutilation of bodies and rapes and beheadings, unbelievable. Parents uh, being killed before their young children. I mean, just, you cannot imagine the healing that's gonna be necessary for these people. But then when we see the world response and we realize in one of the most bizarre things in the Western world, is that the um, leftist uh, neo-Marxist in the, I call them the neo-Marxists and I've studied it quite a bit, and maybe you have too, you know, Herbert Marcuse and uh, SN Liberation, and some of these folks that really have gained control of so many of our institutions through the professors have raised up a generation that is really a fifth column, is anti-American, but amazing, these radical leftists, uh, politically correct, partner with uh, with radical Muslims. And if they were in those countries with uh, where those radical Muslims come from and, who and uh, uh, those countries which support this radical Islam, these folks would all be killed. Yeah. But it doesn't matter to them. They're on the street partnering with them in such anti-Israel rhetoric that is a totally wrong idea. And they're also... Um, uh, repeating their phrases from the river to the sea, which is genocide to Israel. They're uh, uh, calling Joe Biden a perpetrator of genocide. And really, you know, and they're claiming that Israel is violating international law, which they're not, because international law does not say that civilians must not die while you go after your enemies. It says civilians must not unnecessarily die but if they're being used as human shields, you can still go after the enemy. Right. That's what international law actually says. So what we're seeing is a mass lying about what is actually written in the Geneva Conventions on this, uh, 
creating this propaganda against Israel and now a growing anti-Semitism on the college campuses. And I think that this has been so painful to Israel that in this time of darkness, uh, there are people pulling back from Israel's support. There are world leaders. Barcelona breaks their relationship with Israel, you know, southern Spain, a lovely area, but politically very backward thinking on these kinds of issues. And so um, we're both traumatized by uh, the what Hamas did, but we're traumatized by the number of people in the world that don't get it. Right. And it yeah. doesn't seem to me to require great moral discernment to figure it out. Right. I think one of the things that's been uh, surprising to many people is the vengeance with which anti-Semitism has come roaring back. Uh, we thought maybe that ghost had been put to rest, although I guess those who were discerning realized that it really had not gone away. It had just uh, put on a Brooks Brothers suit and had maybe assumed a more civilized visage. But um, now here it is on full display. And this is the same mentality that one time drove Jews out of Spain um, out of Italy, out of England. And so uh, what we're seeing is that the people that you might have thought represented the Western tradition of liberal inquiry, and by liberal, I don't mean left of center, but I mean rather everybody is allowed to articulate their position, even if we don't always like the position. Um, the, the one group that's been excluded from that is the Jewish community. One of the things that um, I'm very aware of is that when Derek Prince said years ago, he said, if the anti-Semitism is a sociological problem of not being able to uh, embrace the Jews because they're different from the people around them, then Israel will solve the problem. But if it's primarily a spiritual problem, and Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, then the existence of Israel will someday produce the greatest level of anti-Semitism that the world had ever seen. There you go. And that's what we're seeing because um, Israel is a key to God's plan of world redemption. That's why we're in Israel. That's why we're in the Messianic Jewish movement as part of that. And um, uh, therefore, the devil has to throw all that he can at uh, Israel and he has to use Israel as an occasion for anti-Semitism by putting out these incredible lying narratives about Israel being colonial uh, imposition upon the indigenous population, which, you know, Israel is the white settler population uh, oppressing a brown native population. That is so untrue. And of course, you've been to Israel and you well know that Palestinian Arabs are not a brown population. <laughs> true. So even that is mythology. Yeah, it, there, there's so many things about this that have been twisted. And honestly, people, I, I mean, this may be not the best time to go to Israel due to the hostilities that are going on. But I would really encourage anybody who's not been to Israel to go and to see um, see for themselves what's really going on there. I have a friend who is very much part of the whole left wing uh, anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian, um, but but frankly caught up in the whole Marxist meme as well. Uh, very deeply involved in all that. And she has a PhD from a well-known theological uh, institute. And 
when she went to Israel and then also went to um, both the West Bank and down to Gaza and visited those areas and saw for herself what was going on, she did a complete turnaround. And now she's one of the most pro-Israel people I've ever met. She's not Jewish, but she has many Jewish friends. Mm -hmm. And when the war started, she got on an airliner and flew to Israel specifically to go down to the edge of Gaza to uh, assist with what amounts to material support to the IDF. Um, that's how big of a turnaround she had by looking wow. at the facts. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, you know, for your listeners to know, um, Israel came about under the Turkish Empire. The Turks were the colonial power, not Western Europe, not whites. And then, of course, how did the Middle East become uh, Muslim? It's because the colonial power of the Arab nations forcing everybody to convert to Islam. So, I mean, you know, who's going to talk about indigeneity? The majority of the population of Jerusalem before Zionism was Jewish. So, you know, we don't usually see that. But Jews uh, under the Turkish Empire built large, bought large tracts of land to create settlements in the land. Uh, they drained swamps, they took desert land, they went to places where nobody wanted to live. And all, before the 48 war, all the land was purchased. And it wasn't through governmental aid from the West. It was something done through Jewish fundraising and efforts. And it was only in the 48 war out of necessity that Ben-Gurion extended the borders and took what would have been considered Arab land so that the borders after the 48 war were somewhat larger and more defensible because as Abba even said, the first famous foreign minister of Israel, uh, the 48 partition was Auschwitz borders. And so, um, uh, that's what we had, and those borders held until 67, and that's when Israel gained the West Bank out of war. But Israel only took land by force out of war. They didn't force other people out, and they really uh, are returned. And the colonial powers did not want Israel to come into being. They, they succumbed to it out of empathy. Truman lost his Secretary of State, uh, Marshall, out of that, uh, uh, who resigned over Truman's recognizing Israel because the colonial powers wanted to be in league with the Arabs for the oil and in partnership. They didn't want Israel to come into existence. So right. the idea that Israel is this Western thing that was imposed on the Palestinians, what a total lie. It's this thing that Jewish people did to save themselves from persecution in spite of colonial powers opposition. Well, you know what uh, Heinrich Himmler, who was, uh, Adolf Hitler's minister of propaganda, uh, what he famously said, you tell a lie long enough and sooner or later people begin to believe it. Right. And that's what's happened here. And that's so correct. this is this is perpetrated in our universities and uh, by leftist narratives. I don't know. We'll, we'll see where it goes. But like I said, it's a trauma that this is not understood uh, more right. clearly. And, you know, a lot of people have written Alan Dershowitz, uh, Brett Stevens, that we're now recognizing the utter bankruptcy of Western university education institutions, because this is how we've educated the young people. Yeah, it is. It's really heartbreaking. Um, I'm grateful that somehow I was spared that. I don't think it was intentional on the part of my own university, my alma mater. 
maybe it was because of the courses that I took and there were still some uh, conservative voices and as well as people who really knew the history who laid it out but somehow I didn't have to unwind a lot of that teaching and I'm really yeah. grateful for that yeah. yeah well well thank God Wheaton was not like that but uh, and it's still not like that but uh, boy we did have an SDS chapter at Wheaton which was very Marxist but uh, and they let it be but really the the faculty at Wheaton was stellar uh, and it still is. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the SDS, and I don't want to get down a rabbit trail, but I'll just throw this out there. Um, maybe it was about a month ago, just before these attacks. Um, so I guess I'd be closer to two months then. Uh, I woke up one morning, and the word of the Lord came to me, and he said, um, there is a new SDS rising. And I knew exactly what he meant because I was familiar with that nomenclature. Most people are not. Mm. SDS stands for Students for a Democratic Society. And it was uh, basically a cover organization for Marxist organizers on university campuses around the United States, particularly in the 1970s, in the kind of latter years of the Vietnam War. And it, it provoked great unrest um, in the United States and beyond. And I mean, I, like I said, I knew immediately what this meant. And I've been thinking about this and what we need to do to combat that and uh, counter that sort of thinking. It's a massive job because there's been at least 15 or 20 years of students that have been educated this way, maybe more than that, but I don't want to overstate it. So I'll, I'll leave it at 15 to 20 years. Um, and so we have a whole swath of Western society that's been corrupted by this. And it's interesting that all of this kind of thinking really came to the fore um, after the fall of communism in 1989. And you think, well, okay, so the West, quote unquote, won the Cold War and communism was shown to be a, a bankrupt and corrupt, morally corrupt system. We're not supposed to use value judgments like that, but communism is morally corrupt because it's based on theft and oppression. Um, but anyway, um, so about the time that the West wins the Cold War, suddenly all the universities start hiring leftist professors. And now the vast majority of universities in the Western world are have become indoctrination centers. I mean, yes. I, I'm using strong language, yes. but I think that's I think that's yes. the practical reality. Yeah. And you kind of scratch your head right. and go, how did this happen? They repudiate the gains of Western civilization. I know that Western civilization has a lot of problems. I know America has slavery and I know the I know the, the the dark blotches on our history in America, but to not credit the gains from the Constitution, from the founding fathers. So there's this anti-Americanism, but it's well laid out. I would encourage the readers to read. It's not a long book. Marcuse's book, he says, the revolution is not going to come like Marxists thought through the workers because their wages are too high and their unions and they've been bought off with adequate money. He says, so the revolution is going to come through all of the different oppressed groups, the homosexuals, today we say LGBT, it's going to come through the blacks, it's going to come through the marginalized, and they will make common cause with the intellectual elites of the university. And that's where the revolution will come. And he laid out the whole plan very simply. And that's what's being followed today. So they criticize uh, the Soviet Union as communism gone wrong because of the way it was handled. But they say true neo-Marxism really is the old answer. 
And they really believe that. And they've been fostering it for, like you said, the last 20 to 30 years in the universities. Deconstruct literature. It's all about power. There's no great literature. Uh, you know, Shakespeare and Wordsworth and Tennyson are bogus and worthless. And that's what they do. They're, they're just really destructive. Well, there you go. This, this could, by the way, be its own podcast, this conversation. Sure. Maybe we'll have you back sometime and explore this more deeply. But I had a few other questions that I wanted to cover. So let's, let's break contact with that for right. the moment and know that right. it's a fertile field for right. For and it's a, and it's a, and it's a main reason for the anti-Semitism and anti-Israelism. Absolutely. So it was important that we highlighted it and talked about it. By the way, for those who want to get Marcusi's book, that's M-A-R-C-U-S-I. Um, what's the name of the book that you're most particularly uh, an, drawing on? An essay on liberation. It's the simplest summary of his thought. Okay. An essay on liberation. On liberation. Right. Everybody's aware who's paying attention to the Middle East that um, basically a hostage deal coupled to a, a temporary ceasefire has been worked out and approximately 10 hostages on the Jewish side are being returned today. It, it's been a little more, um, but it's supposed to be about 10. And basically it's a three for one exchange. So three Palestinian uh, captives in Israeli jails are being exchanged for each uh, Jewish person who gets to come home, each Israeli citizen. Uh, right. There's been some others that have been thrown in. They're Thai nationals, Filipino. This is good. Um, and these people's lives matter as well. We're not in any way trying to discount it. So please don't send any hate mail. Um, but, but the real crux of this isn't about Filipinos and Thai. It's about uh, Jewish citizens who were taken captive by Hamas and the exchange for these uh, convicted terrorists who have been held in Israeli jails. So these hostages have been coming home. I think we've had three days of release now. And with that, there's a growing sentiment in the West that Israel should now stand down, um, cease operations militarily uh, on a permanent basis within Gaza and withdraw and go home. How is that point of view viewed in Israel? What's the sentiment on the ground there? Uh, Israel is totally unified on the position that we have to eliminate Hamas as the rulers of Gaza and that we have to pursue the war until Hamas is no longer the ruling power in Gaza. Because Israel knows that if they do anything less, Gaza will rearm and we'll just have to go through the whole mess again. And if, if we're more able to prevent an invasion, more and more rockets and more and more dangers for Israel forever. So the country is extremely unified. It is amazing. You have everybody from the most leftist party, which is called Meretz, Meretz, uh, the Labour Party, which is not quite as leftist as Meretz, who ruled Israel for its first uh, decades of existence, but is out of power now, to the more center-left parties, um, uh, Lapid uh, and uh, Yeshatid, to Gantz, Blue and White, who is centrist, to the right-wing parties, everybody is unified on eliminating Hamas. The question is, will this hold up? Because uh, international pressure uh, can be brought to bear. And what I worry about is the Israel mentality. The Israel mentality is to save a life, an Israeli life, at all costs. And I mean all costs because they don't credit the future 
damage that will be done. So, for example, we all know about them uh, releasing Gilad Shalit in return for a thousand Palestinian prisoners, one of whom is the now the leader of Hamas who planned this whole atrocity on October 7th. So Israel is emotionally captive to the near-term uh, uh, escape or recovery of a captive and not the long-term destruction of Israelis where many more Israelis will die because of what you do in the immediate. And we play that out over and over again in Israel, and you know, because we have these humanitarian feelings. Now the hostages, it's different than just one soldier. Uh, it's it's it really pulls the heartstrings. Children, parents, uh, traumatized people, and we want to get them out. But what are we, what are we going to do? See, I, I I'm praying that no matter what, for the sake of the future, we will go after Hamas. But I don't think Hamas has begun to deal with the psychological manipulation that they can do with the hostages. This is the stage at which they're releasing them for a pause in the fighting while they regroup. But what happens when they say, every day that you fight, we're going to kill a hostage? Will Israel stay unified in spite of their hostages dying or being tortured? And it, it, of course, that's well within Hamas's uh, uh, plan book. Their, uh, uh, and so I hope Israel stays unified and say, look, we want to do all we can to save the hostages. But saving the hostages is a top goal, but secondary to eliminating Hamas. And I'm not sure that all Israelis are agreed on that. It hasn't been tested yet. Yeah, I think one of the things that people really struggle with um, in the West is because we haven't seen uh, this level of warfare in our own societies really since, I guess I could say since the Second World War, where it dramatically affected Europe. Um, yes, there was the Vietnam War. Yes, there's been the Korean War, uh, the war in Afghanistan and um, and Iraq, and I'd say just throughout the Middle East. And there have been other wars that maybe don't involve the United States of America. Um, we've seen some of the destruction of that war, but I think people forget that, um, let's just go back to the Second World War because many people view it as the last good war or the last war with a moral foundation um, when we think about the korea uh, the second world war not korea the second world war uh people forget the absolute devastation that befell say dresden with the bombing of dresden or has anyone seen photographs of the fighting at stalingrad um, or we could pick any number of other cities but those two stand out because of the level of destruction, I think people forget that, you know, war to us has come to mean something like a video game where we see the, the camera view from the sky and something hits a building and the building explodes and we go, oh, cool, that's like a video game. But actually what happens is the streets around are destroyed, the windows are blown out, there's broken glass everywhere. The next building over, just from the concussion, may sustain structural damage and become unsafe. It may later collapse. And as you start doing this over a, a territory or a geography, in this case, northern Gaza, um, there's just, I mean, it can literally look like a moonscape with virtually nothing left behind in the aftermath. This is what war is. And yes. 
it's horrible. It's terrifying. And nobody in their right mind would want it. And yet there's no way to say this nicely. Hamas provoked it. They, they chose off a strong and powerful enemy, basically saying, come and do this to us so we can evoke the sympathy of the world. And they didn't really care about who lost their lives or how many civilians paid yes. the price. This is what you were alluding to when you used yes. the term um, human shields or civilian hostages. Do you want to unpack that a little? Yeah. See, for Hamas, the whole population is their military. Yeah. So if they're going to sacrifice infants and women, it's by the way, have you ever noticed how funny it is with all the feminists that were equal, that we want to get the women and children out first still? I thought that's a little funny. But anyway, all our feminism, we still care about the women and children first. I thought we should care about the men equally because we're now egalitarians. But we're maybe right. when push comes to shove, we're not so egalitarian. But the but the idea for Hamas is if women and children die as human shields. That's part of the price that we pay to eliminate our enemy Israel. And they really are very uncaring about the deaths of their own people. They use it for propaganda, but they intentionally want to see the civilian casualties as part of their war strategy. And uh, they purposely place their armaments and rocket launchers by hospitals, inside hospitals for their armaments, the hospital is their prison for the hostages. Um, they purposely place them in schools, uh, homes. Uh, it's quite amazing. And the way they look at Israel is the women and children are not innocent because women become soldiers when they grow up and the children will become soldiers. So there's no such thing in their mind in distinguishing civilians from the military uh, uh, itself. The soldiers, all of Israel uh, are uh, legitimately targets because all of them are part of the Zionist entity that is the enemy of Dar al-Islam, the reign of Islam. So when you're up against that kind of enemy, uh, it is legitimate in taking them out uh, to warn the population, to try to uh, save the population that's not in the army, even though the majority supported Hamas, they're not innocent civilians, they're still civilians. There are some innocent, but you still want to distinguish civilians from the militarized army. But if the only way to get at the army is to cause the collateral damage of civilians, that is within the Geneva Accords. The Geneva Accords say you're not allowed to uh, intentionally kill the civilians, you have to try to avoid their deaths, but you must not avoid killing them at all costs if it's necessary to get at the enemy. So what you have today is massive lying about what the Geneva Accords said. After World War II, they were adopted, the Geneva Conventions, as a way to mitigate some of the horrific things that happened to civilians in that war. But, right. but, but I, one of the things that is amazing, it doesn't matter what those uh, conventions say now because it's all about what the propaganda is saying it says when it doesn't say it and so they say Israel's the war criminal and they're not saying that Hamas is the war criminals which they truly are because they target the civilians that's right um, for those of you who are listening and are newer listeners to this podcast approximately two years ago when the Ukraine war started Grant and I did a podcast on just war theory we didn't have a guest on the show. I, I led the teaching. 
And I talked about the key tenets of just war theory, which was created actually by Christian theologians based on Jewish and Christian scriptures. Uh, St. Augustine was one of the seminal thinkers in this area, uh, promulgating all this in the early 5th centuries to the 400s AD. And uh, basically just war theory has been what, what's known in academic circles as the Western way of war. This is how you should fight a war if you're going to be ethical and moral about it. Not that we're for war, but if you must fight, this is how you do it. Yeah. And, um, and those got enshrined in the Geneva Conventions after the Second World War. So when people say Christianity has never done any good for the world or Judaism has never done any good for the world, remind them of the Western way of war and just war theory and go back and listen to that yes. podcast because i laid out the key tenets and how they i we yeah. at that time set that down as a template over the ukraine yeah. war and showed why from the ukrainian yeah. side what they were doing was actually a just war well it's very interesting you bring that up brett stevens who used to be part of jerusalem post and then wrote for the new york times a jewish uh, moderate conservative just had an extraordinary uh, editorial on this and he was talking about the norms of western civilization are collapsing because right. of the left because of the leftists in our universities uh, tom holland an atheist historian in britain says that all that we talk about in terms of human rights just war theory is derived from the bible and uh, there's there are no cultures worldwide that have any of these human rights provisions uh, unless, uh, because they weren't influenced by the Bible. The Bible is the foundation of it. And Charles Malik, who is a godly man, who is the president of uh, American University in Beirut, um, deep Christian, he was a primary author of the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Those kinds of ways of thinking that came into the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, uh, the value of every human life, uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, all of those things are biblically based and go back to this history of Christian thinking. And so we wouldn't know any of this, but what's happening now is an Orwellian reversal, Brett Stevens says, is being brought out by the Israel situation where everything means the opposite now. And you're, you're totally tearing down this Western consensus of moral and civil norms uh, in supporting Hamas, and that, you know, especially the idea that Jews are guilty and it's not a crime, whatever you do to Jews is acceptable because they are an evil people. And that's going back to the whole Nazi view, because the Nazis were destroying Western civilization as well. They hated the idea that we should care for the weak. Caring for the weak is a biblical idea, not a Nietzschean idea. So this is what we're up against. It's like we are up against the greatest moral confusion that we've ever faced in the Western world, bringing out that confusion. And look, I would, I would want to say one other thing. If the sure. Jewish people were not God's chosen people, how can you possibly explain that the whole world focuses on supposed atrocities that the Jewish people have committed in taking Palestinian land or doing this or doing that when you have the Uyghurs being suppressed by uh, the Chinese, millions, when you have Russia destroying the Chechnyans, when you have Russia bombing the civilian population of Ukraine, when you have 
Turkey occupying Northern Cyprus. Uh, and you have genocide taking place in Africa, you know, in, in, in uh, Sudan, in Nigeria, from Islamism. And the world doesn't care. They only care yeah. about this little state called Israel. Why? Because the only explanation is spiritual. You can't come up with a, a rational reason for it. It is a stone of stumbling for all nations. Yes. And something, I, I, I don't have my numbers in front of me, but something on the order of 70% of the entire budget of the United Nations is spent on uh, Arab-Israeli or Palestinian-Israeli relations. Mm -hmm. And more than that, I think it's up, maybe it's something like 80% of the resolutions and time that the UN spends is somehow focused on this exact yeah, same right. set of issues. Yeah. Again, so my the, numbers. So, may be so the greatest human, the greatest human rights abusers, like Iran, don't come up for human rights criticism compared to Israel, right? Which is a society that's a free society. So it's pretty amazing. It is really amazing. Um, I think in another setting, it might be called hypocrisy, but. Yes. Anyway, we'll or, leave that. There. Or it might be called anti-Semitism, right? Or it might be called anti-Semitism. Now, um, it's been widely reported that Hamas has infiltrated uh, from Gaza into the West Bank. Um, there's a lot of sentiment in the West Bank that's pro-Hamas. There are some leaders there who have become what we might euphemistically call community organizers. Um, and so there, there appears to be fairly good evidence that this is true, given that um, Hamas appears to be operating in the what's called the West Bank. Um, we know they're in Gaza, and we're going to leave Hezbollah and Lebanon out of this for the moment, not because they don't matter, but just because we're looking right here in the kind of heartland of Israel. Um, what options does Israel have in restoring order to the region, specifically the West Bank and uh, to Gaza? Boy, you know, I, I'm amazed you raised that up because it's been uppermost in my mind for the last week. Because, you see, the Palestinian Authority that's looked at as more moderate really is a different strategy. They don't want to make peace with Israel. They walked away from the most generous peace offer they could ever get in 2007 under Olmert. Their strategy is to get their state and then to use the state as an instrument to destroy Israel. But they want to do it more subtly. And what the Palestinian Authority says to the West in English and what they say to their own population in Arabic is very, very different. But that's how dumb the West is. We're the useful idiots of the world, as, as Stalin called us. And so, but, but they've become so corrupt and are also lining their pockets. And so Hamas has become more popular than the Palestinian Authority. If there was an election today, Hamas would probably win. And they are popular in the West Bank because of what they just did on October 7th. So you want to see the mentality and how difficult it is. I don't know what Israel's going to do. My own view is what Israel should do, is that Israel can say, you can have as much autonomy as you are committed to peace with us. Right. State, a state, well, let's put that on hold. We don't know if it's reasonable to have a state, but you can have almost a state. But as much as you're going to live in peace, 
And you can have political parties run for office, but no party that professes they want to destroy the nation of Israel will be allowed. And so what I believe is that Israel has been feckless, has brought a lot of this on themselves because we allowed Hezbollah to arm after there was a UN resolution that they wouldn't be allowed to be, and it was supposed to be enforced, and it wasn't. We should have cleaned them out 13 years ago. And Netanyahu, or whoever was in power, should have said, if you rearm against Israel, we're going to come and clean you out. You're not going to be allowed to do this. And we should have done the same with Gaza earlier on. But because we put it off and put it off and put it off, we speak loudly and carry a little stick. And now, from having allowed this to fester all these years, we now have seen the radicalization of the West Bank population. It, it so we can we can have a carrot and stick approach to them. The carrot is more and more liberty uh, if they will elect people that are committed to peace with Israel. Or the stick is that we're going to have to rule them. And you know you hate to say this, but maybe remove them. Guess what? You're going to Jordan. Sorry, King. Guess what? You're going to other nations. See you, because we cannot allow a radicalized population that wants to destroy Israel to be given their total liberty. But it's really difficult because the world won't see it. We are in a tremendous uh, catch-22, Ken. Right. Yeah, I've, I've, I've certainly seen that's why I put that question out there. I want our listeners to hear it from your lips, what, what this really looks like. It's interesting. There's been some stuff floating around, of course, on social media. And not everything on social media should be believed. Some of it's uh, fake news, some of it's AI created or it's photoshopped or whatever. But in fact, um, much of what we call Palestinian uh, population has been endemic in Jordan for a long time. Uh, there is, there is the, the nation of Israel between Jordan and the West Bank and between Jordan and the Gaza Strip. Um, but in fact, if you even look at the flags of both Gaza and of Jordan, they're very similar. They're, they're, they're hardly distinguishable from each other. And the thing that's interesting to me, though, is that the government of Jordan is a responsible government. And so when Israel signed a peace treaty with Jordan, there's been no hostilities. Uh, no. The border is secure. There's open. I mean, it's not like there's 48 places to cross the border, but you can cross the border freely. Um, there's flights between the two. And so Israel has had no reason to be, quote unquote, heavy handed or disproportionate is the word we hear a lot uh, with the Jordanians, because the Jordanians have been responsible partners in peace and right. similarly with Egypt. And so the idea that Israel doesn't know how to behave itself is a fallacy. And there's two solid cases involving two functioning nation states that have responsible governments that. When Israel has a peace partner, they know how to they know how to make peace. And so it's important for people yeah. to recognize that history and to see that what we've got is groups within these two specific areas, Gaza and the West Bank, that are committed to the destruction of Israel. And I don't think there's ever been a government in history that will allow what amounts to an insurrectionist group to continue existing within their borders. Right. Well, you have this amazing conundrum because the Jordanians is a minority government and they fear the Palestinians. The majority of the population of Jordan is Palestinian. Right. 
Right. And this is the funny thing is they call Israel an apartheid society, and it's not. Uh, Israeli Arabs have full rights, but the West Bank is occupied. They don't have full rights anywhere. They have autonomy. They could be linked to Jordan or something else. Jordan never gave them liberty. But some people remember Black September when Jordan killed 10,000 Palestinians. Uh, and why? Because the Palestinians, if they had their right, and the radicals would like to overthrow the Jordanian government and take it over. So the conundrum is that what was the Palestinian mandate, which included Jordan, now has a minority government that wants to stay in power. So apartheid is really practiced in Jordan because the Palestinians in Jordan do not have full rights. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's stranger than fiction when you think about all these things and what the solution is. But I think the way you put it is really right. You can't have a population within your borders that is seeking your destruction as a nation. And, um, we have that now in the United States, although thankfully it's a much smaller percentage. Right. Uh, but but uh, they are seeking the destruction of Israel. And the Palestinian Authority will not condemn the Hamas attacks on October 7th, and they have celebrated it. Uh, one of their leading guys in the parliament, who's not a good guy, I've followed him over the years, uh, is a guy who um, uh, uh, has has thought it was a great heroic thing that happened October 7th. He's one of the top leaders in the Palestinian Authority. So, you know, we've been saying for years, we don't really have a peace partner. And right. I think it's I think it's true. Yeah, the, the predecessor to the Palestinian Authority, for those who don't know, was known as the Palestine Liberation Organization, or PLO. And uh, the PLO was responsible for the slaughter of nearly the entire uh, Israeli Olympic team in Munich in 1972. And this led to the Lebanon War um, in 1982, because the whole PLO leadership was in Beirut. And Israel said, we can get those guys now. And they invaded with the intention of destroying the PLO in one shot. More or less, it's deja vu all over again. It's kind of a earlier version yeah. of what you're seeing in with Hamas in Gaza. And in the end, uh, Israel was not allowed to finish what it was doing right. because Russia stepped in, threatened nuclear war. And so the entire PLO leadership was evacuated from Beirut aboard a U.S. naval vessel and taken to exile in Tunisia. And then Israel brought Yasser Arafat back to the West Bank after he professed that he would live in peace under Rabin, which was a total lie. But, you know, if you study uh, Arab political theory, Lying to the infidels is considered moral. All right, let's shift gears here. We're almost done. Um, earlier this year, there was a global fast, a 21-day fast, and over 5 million people globally signed up for this fast. Uh, Takun was part of it. Um, IHOP KC was part of it. Uh, Orbis was part of it. We were a sponsor. Um, you guys were more the organizing group. But anyway, um, and the whole point of it was to pray for Israel's peace. There was a sense prophetically that danger was coming that a war might be looming israel's surrounded by enemies on all sides and we see that reality right now it's a good thing we did that fast who knows what might have happened without it but i was just wondering um there hasn't been another like this uh since that fast in may uh there there have been some people who called for 
like partial fast, but nothing like what that right. fast was. Is it time for another such fast before we get deeply into it, the Christmas Hanukkah period? It might be, and there are people who are calling for it, but nobody has had the weight to pull it off. You know, the conclusion of that 5 million 21-day fast was 110 million prayed worldwide on May 28th. And there was a prophetic consensus, which you referenced, that Israel was going to be in great danger for war and that we were to pray protection on Israel and that this was not the last day of war, that the devil would want to prematurely bring down upon Israel the final war because it was not God's time yet for two reasons. We haven't completed the work of world evangelism and we haven't completed the work yet of preparing Israel to accept Yeshua which requires a larger Messianic Jewish movement in Israel in parallel and unity with the rest of the body worldwide to provide the weight so that Israel is prepared to accept Yeshua in the last war. So we have to prevent it, be sons of Issachar, and to say no to the devil in trying to bring that destruction now. I think that you might be very wise now that the prophetic sense of those prayers have been fulfilled we're seeing what the danger, the danger they were seeing now has come into reality. We're seeing it. And so this would be a very good time to mobilize world prayer again. And I don't know who can do this. I mean, IHOP's going through some struggles right now, so right. they couldn't. Um, Lou Engel is a key person who might be able to do something. Billy Wilson at ORU. I don't know who could, but somebody's got to get the bug or get the spiritual inspiration to say they can mobilize this because the people are there to 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 do this if they were called upon and i think december would be a great time because we're going to be coming back into this whole hostage issue again israel's going to be in great danger in terms of how they respond to it and uh iran is always looming in the background and boy i'll tell you you know when, when the United States invaded Iraq and got rid of um, the Ba'athists, they were a great um, bull. They were a buffer against Iran. And I shouted in my spirit, no, you're going to make Iraq aligned with uh, uh, Iran. And I felt if they were going to have an invasion, they should have invaded Iran. <laughs> as bad as Saddam Hussein was, everything. And you know what? I'm no great political theorist, but what I sensed in the spirit, it worked out exactly as I thought it would. And it's so painful to see that happen sometimes when your top political leaders can't see what's going to happen as a result. It was because they stupidly thought that Iraq would become a westernized democracy rather than realizing that once they get rid of the Sunni minority rulers, the Shiites will come to power and they'll suppress the Sunnis that used to oppress them and they'll align with Iran. How could you not know that? I knew <laughs> it. I knew it 23 years ago, but and other people knew it, but our political leaders in the United States didn't know that. So to me, Iran is the big power and we need to have huge mobilized prayer to prevent Iran from its destructive uh, intentions. Yeah, amen. I, I saw something just this week. I, I don't know how reliable it was, so maybe it's off. But it said that Iran currently has enough fissile material for three nuclear weapons. Now, that's a yeah. common common knowledge now that they're uh, very, if they want to build the weapon now, they've got what it takes to do it. Right. And, and we keep saying we're they, not going to permit it, and we keep permitting it, right? Well, and we've 
they've made no bones about the fact that they would like to get it and use it against Israel. Again, the last time somebody ignored a, a threat against the Jewish people, we got World War II. Um, I think people have been ignoring the Hamas threat for a while, the Hezbollah threat for a while, the Iran threat for a while. Unfortunately, there's a time for war. There's a time for peace. There's also a time to stop covering your eyes and covering your ears and saying, I see nothing, I hear nothing. Right. I agree. Well, Ken, I, I we got to get a lot of prayer going, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Um, let's On that point, um, as we close, how should we pray for Israel, um, just ourselves in wherever, you know, our home groups, our churches, in our own private devotional lives? What do you think are the key points for prayer? Well, I, I, I gave a message the other day and I said, we need to be like sons of Issachar in our prayer life to know uh, what Israel should do, you know, to know the season and know what Israel should do. So we need to pray that Israel not back down from eliminating Hamas's ruling power in Gaza. Number two, we need to pray that God raises up mighty voices in the Christian community and in the political spheres of our Western societies that can counter this anti-Israel propaganda and lies about international law and Israel being uh, committing genocide. We need to come against that lie. Uh, we need to pray because this battle is won in prayer. And then thirdly, we need to pray protection for the soldiers, especially Messianic Jewish soldiers, uh, and pray for a great harvest in Israel uh, among Jewish people and among the Gazans. There's a little hint in Psalm 83, which talks about defeating the enemies of Israel. And a lot of people have gotten that passage to pray. I got it, uh, which talks about the people that have the plot to destroy Israel. And it says that after they are destroyed, some of them will recognize the God of Israel and come to believe in him. That's actually in the psalm. The idea that if we defeat them, it will just raise more radicals is the very opposite of the Arab mind. Their defeat will cause them to think maybe our God is not the most powerful and the Jewish God is more powerful. So I think that, you know, Western people don't think that way, but Middle Eastern people do. So we need to pray for a harvest to come as a result of this as well. Amen. Well, as we close, would you like to lead us in a prayer down these three points and then sure. we'll call it a wrap? Yeah. We'll do it. Father, we thank you and praise you for the grace of God that's on us as Messianic Jews and Christians to intercede. We pray in the name of Yeshua, in the name of Yeshua with all of our hearts, that you would protect the soldiers and that you would enable them to defeat Hamas, that they would not pull back, no matter what the cost is, from defeating Hamas, and that the hostages will not be able to be used in a way that will uh, preclude the defeat of Hamas and ruling Gaza. We Amen. pray that you would protect the Messianic Jewish soldiers and all soldiers that are in this war. Give supernatural deliverances. Let the casualties be very few. And Father, we pray that you would protect especially the Messianic Jews, that they would have supernatural testimonies and deliverances that will bring people to the knowledge of Yeshua. And we pray, Father, that you would raise up mighty voices in the Christian world and in the political spheres 
to counter this wicked propaganda and lies that is being put out now by Hamas and the leftist supporters on the campuses and in uh, various political movements, and that you would bring your light and truth to bear in this terrible situation of anti-Semitism. In the name of Yeshua, raise up the truth, we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. 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 Well, Dan, thank you so much for giving us your time today and sharing with us your thoughts on these points. This was a wide-ranging discussion, but I think an important one. And uh, who knows, we may have you back soon to talk about the intellectual roots of the modern leftist movement. Oh, it's just incredible. You know, I, I'll say this goes back to my days at Wheaton with Francis Schaeffer when he began to expose me to all that. And it's like, wow, you know, now it's coming about. Well, blessings on you. Yeah, blessings on you. Grant, do you have anything you want to add before we sign off? No, I just would love to have you back. And I would love to uh, do a whole episode on what we were uh, rabbit trailing on there as well. And thank you so much for the uh, the information and uh, the perspective. I think that's good. And Ken, it looks like we have work to do to start another global prayer movement. So I guess we'll oh, make I was some thinking notes on when that. we sign off, I may get in touch with a few of the names that we just dropped here and see about organizing this because as Dan noted, um, IHOP's having some of their own issues. It's interesting, and I don't want to drag this out, but I will say this just as a quick remark. It's interesting that all the trouble at IHOP boiled to the surface on the very day that Israel launched the ground war into Gaza. Yes. And that and, says something to me. Why now? Why not yeah. three months later? Right. Timing is terrible for prayer. That's right. So anyway. it may be that we may that we need others to step up and somehow steward this um, time of prayer for the nation of Israel in the absence of IHOP's leadership. Yes. Yep. Amen. All right. Thank you, Ken. Blessings on you. All right. Blessings, everybody.